There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plushcare. Plushcare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. The Other Hand is part of the Acast Creator Network. Welcome to the latest edition of The Other Hand podcast with Chris Johns and myself, Jim Power. Today, we're doing something a little bit different again. Uh, we have a guest. We're joined by Charlotte Cavalier, who is the professor at the Ford School of Public Policy at the University of Michigan. And before moving to Michigan, she was professor at the School of Foreign Service at Georgetown University and was a fellow at the Center for the Study of Democratic Politics at Princeton University. Charlotte has a PhD in government and social policy from Harvard, and her work appears regularly in some of the serious political journals, particularly in the United States. Charlotte's research really looks at the dynamics of popular attitudes towards redistributive social policies at a time of rising inequality, high fiscal stress, and high levels of immigration. Uh, the main reason why Chris and myself have invited Charlotte onto the podcast, and thank you very much, Charlotte, for joining us, is because Charlotte is just publishing a book called Fair Enough. The book proposes and tests a framework for studying attitudes towards redistributive social policies. The book argues that these attitudes are shaped by at least two motives. Firstly, people support policies that increase their own expected income. That's the self-interest piece. And secondly, they support policies that move the status quo closer to what is prescribed by shared norms of fairness. So that is the fairness piece. So there's, I guess, the marriage of personal interests and also fairness. I won't do any more introduction on the book, Charlotte, because um, I know you're going to tell us a lot about it. But the first thing to get the ball rolling, I'd just like to ask you, and, and this is really interesting in the context of political debate here in this country, Ireland, where I'm based at the moment. What do you understand by inequality? What's your definition? All right, let's get started. And thanks for having me. It's a, it's a real honor and pleasure. So inequality and given what I know about your background, for you and I means some statistical construct that allows us to look at wealth or income in a given year and see whether or not it's concentrated in a small or a large subset of the population. Of course, most people have not taken statistics. And so that's partly what the book is about. It just says inequality is not the statistical construct that we think about as policy leaders, researchers, or people working with a lot of data. For people, inequality has a valence. It's either fair or unfair. It's a state of the world where some people have more than others. And then immediately following that is an evaluation of whether or not the fact that some have more than others, is it fair or not? And to some extent, the book comes out of this intuition. I kept sitting in courses where we were talking about the consequences of inequality. 
And I said, but it's, it's a statistical construct. What can a statistical construct do politically? It's how people interpret it, how they experience it that matters. And different people will interpret it and experience it very differently. One of the reasons why we are so interested in this is in an Irish context, Ireland is one of the economies that goes from massive market level inequality to Scandinavian levels of inequality via the tax and welfare system. And that's usually done through something called a Gini coefficient. That argument is made via that, that very number, actually. But there are lots of different ways that we can measure inequality. And I think that you mentioned the ordinary person in the street is not a statistician. In terms of the various measures that you use in your book, for example, you often are comparing low to high incomes in ways that the Gini coefficient kind of sort of sometimes captures and doesn't. Do you have a preferred measure or do you approach it holistically by saying, look, we've got to look at a whole bunch of stuff, including this more subjective stuff that you've begun to touch on there? I like to think about aspects, mechanisms, things that feed into the Gini coefficient that make sense in people's everyday lives. And so for a subset of the population, what makes sense is this concentration of income at the very top. And so, of course, so Piketty kind of developed that top 1% measure of what share of an income flow in a given year goes to the richest top 1%. Of course, people don't have that in mind. But there's always a subset of the population that through newspapers, through Instagram, is perceiving that some people are living a lifestyle that is extremely disconnected from the rest of us. Okay, so some people are going to notice that. But for other people, it might not be about inequality per se concentrated at the very top. It might be more experienced as income stagnation, this mismatch between expectations where they should have been at this stage of their life cycle and what actually happened. That we know feeds into the Gini coefficient. So it's this idea that because it's all, everything's relative in the Gini coefficient, the way it increases, it's because this concentration at the top, but also because the income of the middle is not moving as fast, not increasing as fast, okay? That will be experienced by people maybe without even the concept of inequality in mind. And so a lot of my research have been trying also to think about, okay, what does it mean to form an expectation about your future income? How do you reevaluate that expectation relative to your kind of income experience? But in that sense, you know, in response to your question, I would say that aspect of inequality I'm interested in might have little to do with how people are thinking about inequality. They experience it more as a sense that I'm not getting what I deserve. They've experienced resentment because of a mismatch between expectations and the experienced income trajectory. You might be describing the forces that perhaps led to Donald Trump or, or Brexit. In one word, that would be disappointment or perhaps resentment about people not getting what they think they deserve. Would you accept that that, that can potentially be very subjective and perhaps open to manipulation and perhaps also say, well, maybe we shouldn't care so much about what inequality is, is or it is not and what we should be managing are people's expectations and that we need to be perhaps more honest with people and say, well, we live in a world that is not fair. It's always been unfair and the rich will get richer and the poor will get poorer. Get over it. The main finding is that it is about people's perceptions. It's about subjectivity, ultimately. Just a quick aside, inequality is the way elites, usually on the left, by the way, have been framing what's wrong with capitalism. In the 70s, it was unemployment. The real issue was the fact that we had promised full employment to everybody and we're not getting it. I don't know if you remember Goldthorpe's work in the 50s. The issue there was too much wealth, embourgeoisement of the working class that was going to go to the Tories, right? So inequality, again, is the construct a certain class of elites have used to try to make sense of, of the experience today. This concept resonates a lot in French society. So I guess like Ireland, France is also a country that does a lot of redistribution, but it's also unique in the sense that it doesn't have the same kind of increase in inequality in market income that other countries have experienced. So it's actually a country where demand for redistribution should be pretty low, or at least not a big salient issue. But we know through the survey data that the French perceive their status quo as extremely unfair, inequality is extremely high. 
And so you get this paradox where the country where there's been the least increase in income inequality is one that's the most worked up about it. So in site one, it is everything subjective here. That, yeah. that brings me back to, to part of my question that I may have clumsily asked is that you talked about France there, where, which is a, where policy by accident or probably design does a lot of redistribution. And yet when asked, French people say we are a very unfair society. And as we see from our TV screens, the French regularly take to the streets to protest how unfair their country actually is. I go to France a lot, and I think that it is one of the nicest places on earth. I have a very different perception, a very different subjective view of what France actually is. But that's really, is it then policy? Is it, is it not the logic of what you're saying is that policy should not therefore be directed towards these very important issues of redistribution and to conclude in the French case that perhaps we do enough and the important policy initiative is to educate the population properly as to the facts about income distribution. First point, if it is about how people perceive the status quo and I've proven you some small piece of information that it's usually disconnected from the facts, I can tell you repeating information about the facts is not going to change how they evaluate it. <laughs> so there's tons of research on that. So how do we make sense of that? We have a world of elites and researchers who think there's a reality out there. People misperceive it. Can we correct that misperception, either to tell them it's not that bad or to tell them it's worse than you thought, right? And what research shows is that that's really hard to do. <laughs> so it means that maybe the way we're thinking about this is wrong. It's not as if there's an objective world out there and there's a set of biased beliefs that we need to correct. I think the way we should think about this, and that's the beauty of, hu of humanity, is that we are a species where we owe each other justification. We're constantly trying to tell a story, and if possible, a story that serves us, right? We want to tell a story that allows us to take a bigger share of the pie or something, but we need a story to, to tell it. In the process of telling a story, we can totally reshape the real fact. So what that means, it means that potentially the way we're thinking about this in terms of there's an objective set of facts out there and we need to correct people's misperceptions about this is the one way, one way to think about this. Politics is about disagreeing about what is and there's no truth out there about what is. <laughs> Ultimately, politics is about trying to gain something by saying what is is unfair or by saying, no, what is is fair. And by definition, if you are debating some kind of moral claim about how fair just the status quo is, that's a moral point. There's no true facts out there. So let's say I come to the French people and I say, look, compared to the UK, the US, you're doing fine. Stop protesting. Well, they're going to look for other data that shows that, hey, but look at the mortgage sector. Look at the housing sector. So Piketty's last book has a lot of data about how actually, you know, it is unfair because New generations are not settling in cities as easily as their previous generation. They're not creating wealth. So there's always a way to portray the status quo as unfair in some fashion. Another example I give, I bring to my liberal friends evidence that if you increase, for instance, the generosity of a social benefit, people are going to put a little less work <laughs> into looking for a job. It is true. It's in the data. A liberal is usually going to say, Wait, wait, wait. But that's because they have more time to find the perfect job. That's because it's better. And a conservative is going to say, no, I told you these benefits are too high. I guess my point is, is there's no true facts when it comes to redistribution. <laughs> Should we stop worrying about it then rather than we devote considerable resources to the study of the distribution of income? We produce tons of data in the UK and Ireland. There are institutes devoted to this. We have something here in the UK called the Resolution Foundation, that 90% uh, of its effort is devoted to the production and analysing of data and reaching policy conclusions. Um, the Institute for Fiscal Studies does, doesn't do quite so much focus on redistribution, but is very focused on it. We have it, think tanks in Ireland, Jim. I'm thinking of all the... ESRI, the... NERI. There's various acronyms, all devoting huge swathes of their lives to this issue. And at risk of being provocative, Professor, are you telling me that it's all so subjective that we can't reach any definitive conclusions? I'm also being provocative. Let me continue that provocative direction. What I'm saying is that all these think tanks are part of a political debate where we're trying to justify to the other side that something ought to be done. 
And part of this justification process is producing that data. And that data is helpful in this process. But if we're presenting this as some objective truth about how, how the economy is working or not working, well, I'm telling you is that the political process is not going to accept this as truth. It's going to turn it and interpreting it as a function of this ideological debate between is it so unfair that we need to do something about this? Or it's not that unfair. The real problem is A, B, C, D. And then you kind of ship. Does that make sense? Charlotte, you, you talk about income inequality. What about other types of inequality? Access to education, access to health services, access to political power. How important are those sources of inequality um, in terms of determining income inequality? So they're all very, very important. And I, the book is trying to be parsimonious. So I kind of look at the outcome, right? So there's all these institutions that feed into generating an income distribution. And as you said, it's, it's even household formation patterns, like which family you're born into is then going to shape which other institution, the educational system that then you experience on the labor market, wage setting institutions, you know, industrial relations that then shape the income distribution. So I'm just being lazy, I'm looking at the output. All the evidence shows, of course, that everything kind of feeds into, into, there's all these other institutions that matter. So kind of two thoughts. One is that usually, I think the, the key institution in our democracies are, is the educational system. And so usually, if you experience the educational system as something that was roughly fair, you know, you basically were a winner of it. You worked hard, took the exams, went to the next step, end up with a degree and do okay in the labor market you're more likely to think of these institutions as not perfect, but fair on average. If you've lost that race, you're less likely to think so. <laughs> so of course, your experience of the institutions and how your trajectory through it do shape how you think about the, the fairness of the status quo. Your question points to something else, which is other types of inequality, like political inequality and wealth, for instance. The book has nothing to say about that. Uh, and wealth is a really complicated one because it brings the issue of ownership. It's your ability to keep your income and reinvest it and turn it into an asset that generates a right onto future income flows. Just imagine a society where we could do that. Like it's already extremely complicated to have the institutions that allow that. And how people evaluate these institutions are, are, are not well understood. Sometimes it seems that people are going to say, Wealth is unfair because it's really a function of what, which family you were born into. But then because it's this kind of ownership aspect, people hate the idea that, you know, you would take something from someone who owns it. And so there you get kind of, you know, less redistributive attitudes. On the politics side, I don't look into this particularly, but the one book that inspired me is um, Michael Walzer's Fears of Justice. It's a really old kind of political theory book. But it becomes problematic when your advantage is one type of asset of good overlaps with advantages in other types. So he argues, you know, for you can be rich income wise, but let's make sure you're not too rich wealth wise and definitely not in terms of political power. I find this a really profound intuition. And um, I think trying to assess our, our polities through this aspect of overlapping inequalities is a good way to see how bad the situation is. One of the things that I think has driven a lot of the sort of antagonism about inequality is the pay of CEOs, for example. There is in this country a cap on what bank CEOs can be paid since the banks brought the economy down in 2007, 2008. Obviously, the CEOs themselves are deeply unhappy. The arguments that boards are making is that how can we attract the best people into the job if there is a cap on their salary. What is your attitude towards executive pay? I mean, how do you gauge what somebody is worth? That debate I followed because it's so interesting. Ireland is one of the only countries who has this cap. It's been fascinating to observe. So remember what I said before about you can put these, try to put evidence on the table about how actually CO pay does or does not influence, say, the overall output of a, of a firm or something. This whole debate is about whether or not, to simplify a little bit, capitalism is fair or not. Because basically what these CEOs are saying is capitalism works by rewarding highly productive people. So it's fair. Effort pays. There, you're generating a mismatch. You're making between their effort and how they could be paid. You're generating a bit of resentment. I'm working super hard and I'm not being paid as much as this other guy working super hard in the U.S., 
Thus, I'm going to work a little less hard or I'm not even going to apply for the job because you're not recognizing my kind of fair value. My guess is people on the left who are saying, no, let's just keep the cap. Part of the debate is, first of all, the reason why CEOs are good CEOs, it's not because they're incentivized to work hard and being rewarded. It's because they care about other things. It's because they're dedicated to their tasks. So the talent we're losing is not that big of a deal. They have a very different kind of perceptions of how effort <laughs> is uh, the nature of effort and how it's being rewarded. The way I think about this is more straightforward is yes, if Ireland is the only one doing that, it is going to have a harder time attracting quote unquote talent. The problem is my perspective is I can't believe the talent pool is that shallow. <laughs> so I would actually love great data telling me why are we, what are the institutional reasons why Boards, when they're selecting CEOs, think they can only pick between two, three people. And there's been some bit of research. I I have been a financial institution, sort of bank CEO. I've had CEO attached to my name once a long time time ago. And and that, of course, doesn't qualify me to to to, uh, (laughs) pronounce on what every CEO and what every bank board and what every institution does but i of course feel and this is an this this is not a trivial point that i'm making one of the things that we all do is that we argue from anecdote but i'm going to tell you my anecdote born of being an insider in this particular debate you're absolutely right to focus on the talent pool because you don't need to be that talented to be a bank ceo is one of the dirty secrets of banking you need to be pretty talented i think to turn an institution into jp morgan for example but to run regional banks in the United States and here in Europe, not so much. And there's an awful lot of people working within these institutions who can do a pretty good job. And you're absolutely right. An awful lot of them would do a good enough job for the board of directors, strategic objectives at salaries actually far below the ones that are, yeah, are at and, the cap. And, and if, if I may throw into the uh, pot there, the fact that when those caps were not in existence, we had CEOs who basically drove the banking system into a deep hole. So paying high salaries does not guarantee performance. Uh, guarantee success. You know, and- there's no doubt about that. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustoleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustoleum. Hey Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombus, we've always said our socks, underwear, and t-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. The other thing about those salaries is, of course, is that they're in a self-reinforcing bubble and a self-inflating bubble in that the, the remuneration committees, and I don't know if you've ever, you, you need to be on the inside to understand this. There is an industry, uh, a sector within the financial services industry called remuneration consultancy. There are agencies like McKinsey and the Boston Consulting Group who do strategic consulting for companies. There are actual highly paid people who come in and tell you how much to pay your senior people on the basis of their very proprietary data sets. And the game is everybody knows that the way you get your own salary up is by paying the guy or the woman next to you, above you or below you, more because it's a relative game. And and therefore, in a mathematical sense, it's unbounded. So... You have bankers, and I do think uh, Jamie Dimon, the CEO of uh, J.P. Morgan, I think might be a billionaire. Even in J.P. Morgan's case, I'm not sure that that is right. But I am utterly convinced on the basis of my anecdotal personal experience that the entire game is rigged. Um, There's another way, there's another industry, mine, to talk about there. It's the academia, because academia used to have much less unequal uh, wage salaries. And so according to, again, more anecdote of people who lived through the 70s to today, Basically, what happened is that public universities came on the on the scene, funded by state 
state money to compete with the Ivies and other private universities. And so how do you compete? Well, you can compete on reputation by attracting talent. And so they started trying to poach folks. And so suddenly the market became, quote unquote, more competitive in that sense. And small differences in productivity suddenly generated these huge rents, you would say, for the ones who were marginally better. This only happens if it's more competitive, but also if there's a whole kind of pricing structure to tell you the value of this professor. And it has to do with publications. So it was also tied to changes in the publication arena, how grants are given. You get one grant, you might you to get a second, et cetera, et cetera. And so the whole structure of the research sector and academia was changed. And now you get these huge winner-take-all, huge unequal outcomes in, in salaries among professors, with one professor being the superstar, right? Became a superstar market. And I think CEOs have a similar kind of feature. Um, yeah, I do think that the world increasingly, and I think there's a lot of data, and a lot of, I'm not the only person to have argued this, is becoming increasingly superstar, winner-takes-all mm-hmm. type markets in all sorts of different sectors of our economies. And we can talk about that. I want to bring the conversation back while we've still got time and focus, refocus on, on, on your book, because the um, there's a lot in it. And I would certainly recommend it to anybody that's interested in this stuff, if, if anybody's interested enough to actually delve into the detail <laughs> and get stuck in, because it, there's a lot of misperception about these issues. And if you want to correct some of those misperceptions, get stuck into this book. But one of the motivations, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Charlotte, for, for actually getting into this area is that you noticed that this is why we started by asking you about what inequality is. In certain economies, you mentioned France, where it isn't getting much worse, but in the UK and the United States over certain time periods, not necessarily recently in the UK, but perhaps earlier this decade, this century, inequality has gotten worse. And classical Economic theories of redistribution allied with the inequality data says that if people act in their self-interest, putting it as simply as I can, if there are more and more people who are more and more unequal, more and more people who are losing out because of the growth of, say, the 1%, they will get more and more resentful and demand more and more redistribution. It makes perfect self-interested sense to do so, that if there is more inequality, the people who are suffering because of it if there are more of them, in and you are in a democracy, I suspect that's an important caveat, mm-hmm. their voices will be heard, not least at the ballot box. And you were motivated to ask this question in this way because they're not. Is that right? Yeah, exactly. I remember the first class I was a grad student, first year, hearing about a simple formal model that captured that intuition. And I said, oh, that's interesting. People, I grew up, I came from this interesting background that involves some legacies of kind of blue collar northern England kind of ideology and way of thinking and so they were talking about the England as they were outraged about these rich people that were friends of Tony Blair was the usual story and then I was looking at the data and economists were predicting that same thing you didn't need to be a working class person to think <laughs> that inequality should translate into higher demand for redistribution just from a self-interested perspective so the project started there and I think the main insights of why you get this disconnect, well, one is that it's only people who bring a certain type. Well, first of all, most people are not self-interested when they think about redistribution. So the person in the economic model doesn't really exist. And why that is, it's because it's hard to think of a very complicated welfare system that redistributes as an outcome, but in practice is not designed per se to redistribute. It's designed to insure you against old age, against illness, <laughs> against unemployment. So most people are actually not really connecting the dots between high inequality and possible higher disposable income down the line. And so instead, they're putting their fairness lens on. And to some extent, only people who already support redistribution are likely to interpret rising inequality as unfair. So you're not necessarily increasing the share of people who are interpreting the status quo in a way that would change their policy preferences. That's the short answer. The innovation that you seem to have introduced in the book, as I understand it, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you try to focus, uh, rather than on the one word redistribution, you add a couple of words. You focus on redistribution from who we are actually taking the money from, presumably the 1% or the 0.1% or whatever decile or percentile that we are looking looking at, um, there's that focus, there's that question. When we ask the question with that frame, we get one set of answers, we get one set of subjective 
uh, themes. And then if we reframe the discussion to say, okay, well, let's have a look at the people we are giving the money to, redistributing to, uh, that's a different framing that sometimes throws up uh, interesting differences, perhaps similarities, with when we've asked the question the first way. And um, one of the things that really intrigued me was the suggestion, um, I think Simon Wren-Lewis, Professor Simon Wren-Lewis of Oxford University in a blog wrote about your book in very approving terms, I'm pleased to say, in which he traced out an idea that you, you had about that how that from to thing had changed with the years from Margaret Thatcher in the UK through Tony Blair to now, in that in the 1970s in the UK, we were concerned with... Uh, this is putting it very uh, in a tabloid, overly simplistic way, that pre-Margaret Thatcher, we were interested in who we were taking money from. We were interested in the top 1%. Now, put exaggerating to make the point, the focus of attention in the UK is on um, people who we make TV programs called Benefit Street. Yeah, and it's not specific to the UK, by the way. I think the UK is the kind of most striking case because of potentially also the feature of the media market kind of really both amplified the phenomenon and made it really easy to track. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But you're right. So I think the the intuition is the following. First, coming out of, again, a very naive understanding, I expected people who want to take from the rich to also want to give to the poor. And the reasoning was, well, the rich, you take from them because they don't deserve it. The economy doesn't generate, it generates unfair inequality. Thus, the poor is deserving. I'm going to give to the poor. And then the data is just not true. <laughs> that started the whole inquiry. It's like, hmm, is that really interesting? Isn't yeah. that great? And yeah. it's everywhere. The US is a little different. I can expect and explain very briefly, but it's it's a two-party polarized system where the, the way elites talk about it, they force these issues together in a more traditional left-right way. But if you kind of zoom in and ask the question a little bit differently, you still find a little bit of this, well, a strong mismatch. And I can, but let's put the US aside. The UK is like the, the ideal typical case. When I was thinking about these issues, a lot of the way political scientists would think about it is, oh, people are basically stupid. <laughs> like they don't understand things and they say one thing on one thing and then they're, they're ideologically not constrained. They don't have a way of thinking about these issues in a consistent way. And then I thought about it and I read the ethnography and I did my own interviews and I was like, no, they just thinking about different types of inequality. The first one is mostly inequality in the realm of markets and market income. It's about how fairly income is distributed, market income. And here we usually look at the top. We're a little, we get a little touchy about people who have more than us. For the, for the redistribution two aspects, it's more about the fairness of how benefits are distributed. It's more about to what extent is benefits fostering free riding and moral hazard and going to the lazy versus not? It's a very different question, a different sense of, we're talking about different outcomes, basically. And so people are not stupid. They're just looking at very different types of, uh, I would say, stages, I guess, in the, in the sequencing of producing inequality or reducing them. Yeah, Shara, can I, can I just ask you about the role of envy here? I mean, if, if I'm earning a decent income, I'm driving a nice car, I'm happy. My next door neighbor gets a new job, higher salary, buys a bigger car. Inequality between the two households has increased and envy takes over and I become very embittered about it. And there, there is a theory. This isn't necessarily a theoretical example, Sean. That is a theoretical <laughs> But there, there is a theory out there that the rise in income going to the 1% has made the rest poorer. I mean, that surely isn't necessarily correct, is it? I mean, if, if the income pie is growing, you know, it's, it's this question of absolute and relative inequality. It's the parable, yes. the parable of the vineyards, if you remember exactly. your biblical studies. Uh, well, <laughs> I'm French, though. So, so two things. One is the envy, and that's the issue of the micro to the macro, right? So in, at the individual level, we know this phenomena. And if anything, I always joke that it generates a second to first place aversion, which is you've be you belong to an educated cohort of people and then one of your friends goes into finance and you don't, right? And so, and so yeah, there's a little bit of envy <laughs> here. And so if anything, I think that's, I've never been tested, but my hypothesis is that that's why a lot of educated folks are pretty left-wing more than we would expect in absolute terms because they're interacting with people that are way more than them. And so we've documented that it's there. The issue is, of course, aggregating it 
to the level of the political debate in a country that would generate a coalition that might be driven by envy. <laughs> and so there, that's where, again, fairness is important because fairness is the mechanism we use to regulate envy and make sure it doesn't boil up to something destabilizing. And so it can be status quo reinforcing in a way that reinforces inequality, but that's what justification does to some extent. It's try to make sure you don't have grounds to feel envious. And so I think that's where a lot also of people from educated backgrounds still think that the system is fair enough. They got a good education. They ended up with a good job. And so yet we're not tipping them up where to the point of being, you know, revolutionaries <laughs> wanted to blow up the system because they benefit mostly from the system. And in the survey data, they find it actually pretty fair. Something else that interests me in your research, you look at the relationship between immigration, the welfare state and the rise of populism. And that is something that is obviously resonates all over the world at the moment. But it's, it's becoming a bigger and bigger issue in this country also. And you look at what's going on in Sweden at the moment. What, what conclusions are you reaching in that work? Immigration is a great example to show, to illustrate the redistribution from and redistribution to aspects. So in the market, immigrants are actually deserving. They work hard. And so any policy that would make sure that they get their fair wage, on the one hand, you're like, wait, are they taking jobs from British or French people or whatever. But ultimately, people see immigrants as hardworking and deserving of their market income. It's this competitive arena where assuming that they're legally, so that's where it's, it's you know, there's this key distinction. But people are like, fair game. If you work harder, you deserve a better uh, to get that job. When it comes to social benefits, immigrants are not deserving. Why? For some, for some folks. Because they're not part of the original social contract that created the NHS, that created the British polity that is pooling resources together to help each other out in hard times. And so that's where to think of immigration as undermining redistribution, it's not undermining redistribution in markets. If anything, it has nothing to do with how people think about market inequality. What it is, is undermining the aspect of the welfare state that is the most redistributive. It's because... And it's this joint perception that immigrants are overly benefiting from the redistributive aspect of social insurance, meaning they're allowed to take, quote unquote, without having paid into the system enough. That's where Denmark tries to make sure you can only start drawing when you've paid enough, this kind of logic. It's a pure accounting logic on the one hand, but it's also a fairness logic. It's we reciprocate, we help you once you've helped us. And you need to show first that you're a member because you helped us first. My sense is that you think that reciprocity is incredibly important and not least in a subjective sense, but from an objective policy perspective, that making sure that we do uh, things from a policy point of view that are consistent with people's sense of reciprocity. And moreover, I mean, what the, the, the principle that seems to ripple through your work is the proportionality norm. That I, I've said that this you've described it as the dominant behaviorally binding norm and that there are other potential ones but as a matter of empirical fact that people's sense of proportionality which is kind of a sort of related to what we're talking about reciprocity here and the things all tie these dots i think need to be connected there are other forms of equality that we could we, we could talk about we could talk about and you do in the book about the theoretical possibility that you have a 100 percent equal society and one of the things that intrigued me about about your book, and I, I think I understand why he's not mentioned, but if you search your book for the name Marx or Marxism, it just doesn't appear, does it? <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to get tenure in the US, come on. Okay, sorry. sorry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so where do you want to push me on Marx? Because this is going to be publicly available. <laughs> no, no, no. But, uh, yeah, yeah, no, no. It's, but, it's about but, uh, yeah, yeah. The, the thing that really yeah. dominates your work mm-hmm. are these concepts, yeah. the concept of yeah. proportionality and the related... Yeah dots that we join here of reciprocity and I'm trying really to get at if you were to be hired tomorrow as the chief advisor for the Department of Work and Pensions in the UK or the Department of Social Welfare in Ireland these things do exist with those names in this kind of arena where people are going to be looking to you for yeah okay you've got a lot of stuff going on here Charlotte with data with Mm -hmm. old-fashioned theories and your new 
found interpretation of those theories uh, uh, and applying all the data work that you've done. But I'm the minister in charge. What am I going to do? So am I talking to someone who's trying to be reelected or just someone who's trying to decrease inequality? <laughs> well, that's really interesting. That's really interesting. And I suppose that that's the ultimate political question is why do we elect people solely to be reelected? To, why do we elect to we will have an election in both the United States, the United Kingdom and Ireland next year, probably. And in which all three elections will be about people being elected solely to make sure that they are re-elected four or five years hence. Yeah. I'd love to be able to sit down and say to you, well, actually, we, I, I want you to divide these people on doing the right thing. Yeah, that's exactly where I would like to be as well. <laughs> oh, God. Am, am I too hopelessly naive? <laughs> no, no, but as I just, we're kind of. To, uh, closing the circle here, as I told you at the beginning, the right thing means different things for different people. Mm. <laughs> we uh, we use the same words to define it, right? Otherwise, we wouldn't be able to have this conversation. May I interrupt you? Of course, The Economist, yeah. and you do touch on yeah. this in your book as well, would say, yeah. okay, the right thing to do here would, would involve efficiency, concepts yeah. of efficiency, and whether or not that you think that's relevant here or not. Yeah, yeah. So, so that's where I say that's where you need to take into account how efficiency interferes with fairness concerns. So the typical thing for the redistribution, redistribution two aspect is to actually efficiently concentrate benefits on people who need it the most. Given a fixed pie of money, give it to people who need it the most or potentially are going to benefit from it the most in the sense that it'll help them deal with a rough spot and make sure they don't fall into poverty. But you target it, you try to identify people based on need and or efficiency of the investment <laughs> of like giving people some money. The problem with that is that in the process you have, there are two problems, right? And economists actually disagree a little bit on that. One, it's really hard to identify these folks. And so there's actually a lot of inefficiency and in not, so it, some economists are just, you know, do universal basic income. That's the best way to do. And some extent, uh, Milton Friedman was on that track, Indeed. but others are like, no, um, this is politically unfeasible, whatever, given your money, target it. But there you get the following phenomena is that someone's going to be denied who thinks they deserve it. <laughs> and so they're going to look at the person getting it and it, and it generates that kind of resentment um, that both further feeds into the belief that there's a lot of people who are not getting it's not the right people getting the benefits. And so I think a lot of what has happened in the UK is that in the process of kind of targeting efficiently benefits to the work, worse off and shifting from welfare to workfare, you've actually further fed that perception of there's a lot of people who are unfairly, who should not be benefit, getting benefits or getting them because you started denying it to people who were on the, on the margins, right? Who were borderline cases. So that's one way in which efficiency in that realm don't work really well. On markets, man, that's like, I've had so many discussions with economists on that. I always think efficiency, again, assumes that you have a capitalist society that works well according to your models, which is that effort pays, wage is proportional to marginal productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And you can't even fathom that maybe that is not the status quo. And so if this was the status quo, I would be totally on board with you. I'm still not convinced it is. I've seen enough, you know, weird patterns. And so to me, then it becomes a bit of a, you know, it's the economist versus the non-economist. You don't understand things. I know how it works. It's fine. Can yeah. I put it in simple, yeah, yeah. In, in simple terms that I understand this debate? Because yeah. I think the debate has shifted, actually. And I've seen okay. people, I've seen economists from the... Uh, hardline corridors of the IMF changed their minds on this because it used to be orthodoxy that the more redistribution you did, the less efficient your economies became. And that's a crude simplification. There were subtleties, but crudely, that's what we, that's what I was trained on, that, uh, that if you let the market do its thing, it produces the most efficient outcome. And the more you mess with it via things like redistribution, the more you achieve suboptimal outcomes. And in the limit, this pie that you are trying to redistribute, if you do too much of it, you, you won't just stop it. You won't just mean that it grows by less than it would otherwise have done. You might even shrink the pie if you end up like not with North Korean style redistribution policies. I'm painting a very lurid picture here. Yeah. Um, I think the debate amongst economists has shifted and they understand 
that what the data has been saying to them, going back to our winner-takes-all superstar economy, that now growth is actually being damaged by inequality. And that's why, as economists, we are perhaps even more interested in redistribution than we were. The, the, the Chicago Robert Lucas-style economists that were in the ascendancy in the 1980s were, were positively disdainful about redistribution. They were saying this is something that economists should not study because it is utterly uninteresting and probably damaging if you try to do it. I think that the economics profession has moved on. I don't know whether you, you share with that. So we, we get back to, you know, do you would you be able to give our, our finance minister, our minister for social welfare, optimal redistributional policies, to use yeah, an economist's yeah. term? So I'm not entirely sure I agree with you about the profession that they moved on that. I agree the IMF has, and I spent some time with these folks. So there are certain circles. But then there's the problem of the economist who goes and says, okay, well, then let's make sure capitalism is fair. And so they go to antitrust policies. And they're, they're basically trying to make sure the market function in ways that match the model, which like it's one way to redistribute, I guess. For actual redistribution in practice, they're still a little skittish in my experience. Okay. <laughs> they understand there's a problem. So, But so your question is different. So what's the optimal policy? I have no position on that because to some extent, I think this is a political process of defining it. And I see it as a organized battle. And it's if one coalition thinks more should be done and wins, then, you know, it will happen. So to me, the only advice I can tell, give a policymaker, it's more, let's imagine you've been elected by one coalition and you want to decrease inequality or you think there's too much redistribution, go the other way. The advice I would tell is make sure you do a little bit of survey work, ethnographies to understand people's current perception of existing policies. Don't take away policies they think are fair. Don't add ones that, given their prior beliefs, they're going to have a gut reaction to because you're setting yourself for trouble. So Macron should have done some of these surveys before he realized that increasing taxes on gasoline had both a direct effect on people's budget, but also they felt they were the one paying the price, you know, this unfair. That is kind of background work that doesn't cost that much. They're giving so much money to consulting groups and survey firms for their own polling. So I yeah. would help them design these things, if that makes sense. That makes abundant sense. Yeah. And um, I hope these, these, these people are listening. But of course, the one th as an economist, if I was the minister in charge, I'd be saying, Charlotte, listen, I need uh, an optimal policy framework here that maximizes the growth path of the economy. I go back to the efficiency argument. Mm. I want this part. I want... I want to be re-elected because I want people to feel that they're being treated fairly. And I think that's the way I'm going to get re-elected by increasing people's or appealing to people's sense of fairness. But I want the cake to grow. And I want, and I think, and, and I, I accept your point that there's so vast swathes of the profession that think that redistribution interferes with the growth path of the economy. I think that you mentioned antitrust. It's not just about personal incomes. I think that the winner takes all superstar thing clearly is happening in the corporate sector as well. All of these things need to be done, and I'm trying to create some kind of utopia here, which actually brings in Brad DeLong's book, something <laughs> called Slouching Towards Utopia, which we don't have time to discuss today. But 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 these these works are all related, aren't they? Do you think that policy design – you obviously do think policy design could be a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I would say please don't, for austerity reasons – try to scale down projects by making them more efficient, by targeting them to people in need, because there's no recovery from that. I think these programs generate this form, if these types of change generate resentment and are hard to come back from without just spending a lot of money to suddenly make them more universal. Protect, protect the type of programs that are universal, like the NHS, like pensions, like these programs that people don't experience as well, I don't know if I benefit from it, so I'm going to evaluate it based on who I think benefits and whether or not they're deserving. It's just, oh, that's a program I benefit from. It's great. It makes me feel good to be part of this exercise. And so, again, Great Britain is like a story of disasters after disasters. They've reformed their pension system in a way where now it's no longer a kind of national resource pool that old people draw from when they reach that age. And they've underinvested in the NHS, where the experiences in the NHS I'm hearing from this side of uh, the Atlantic, it's, it's just really sad to hear. <laughs> and Brad DeLong agrees with me on that, by the way. We talked about this over lunch. Yeah. Um, so don't do that. And in terms of design, I used to believe in Europe. I'm, I'm a little less optimistic now because I think with a little too diverse of a community and with what's happening in Slovakia and in Poland, it's a little complicated. But I used to think 
shift the debate to Europe and really make Europe the enforcer of a much like tap into left-wing populism by having them do these MAGA taxes. They tried, it took too long and it's not as ambitious, but also try to have Europe as the level at which you do unemployment insurance. So that you, you create a community of destiny and you create trust in an institution that actually has the ability to be very efficient at regulating. It wasn't that efficient because of lobbying, because there were points of entries. It's not a true state. So of course, Ireland was leveraged a little bit also. <laughs> it's hard to do, but that's the only kind of long-term stable equilibrium I see to have the kind of good outcomes of the 50s reproduced for a larger set of the population at a, at a scale that's actually, I think, politically sustainable. That's my short answer. Thank you. Uh, Thank and you. I've taken far too much of your time, Charlotte. So I'm going to show, I've got one final question that I'll ask right at the very end, but I'll give Jim the opportunity to have anything else that he wants to say, because we've, we've completely overrun, which is a great sign, by the way. <laughs> yeah, Charles, uh, th th thank you very much. Um, you know, your book has placed a very strong emphasis on moral reasoning and fairness considerations in designing income redistribution. So I think there's a lot here for policymakers to look at and to think about. I guess I have some misgivings. I'm, I'm, I'm not a believer really in human nature, and I just don't think people will ever be happy regardless of what you do with income inequality. I think the genie's out of the bottle now. We're just moving inexorably towards populism and polarization. I think it, it will take something absolutely dramatic to arrest that. You're catching Jim at the end of a bad week, I suspect, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> um, my final question, what's it, what's it like for, I think you yourself described as an Anglo-French person, is that right? Yeah, and a bit of American now, I guess. What's it like living in the States these days? Oh, gosh. <laughs> we need a bottle of wine for that. Okay. All right. Listen. Uh, it's, it's fine. It's fine. I think America is going to survive thanks to its federal system. I think things are going to go local for a while and then... Yeah. You know, okay. it's a fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Charlotte, yeah. thank you so much. We've taken far too much of your time. Um, all the very best with the book. Thoroughly recommended from us, too. And I, I, I wish you every success with it and with all of your other endeavors. And please, will you come back sometime soon? I would love to. And I, I hope to finally make it to Ireland, actually. So well, let us know when you do. You're very welcome. Let us know. <laughs> okay. And uh, just to repeat, the book is called Fair Enough. So strongly recommend on both sides here. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Thank you. Thank you. You have been listening to Chris Johns and Jim Power on the other hand. We hope you enjoyed it. Our back catalogue of podcasts can be found on our Substack account, www.cjpeconomics.substack.com or on podcast platforms such as Apple and Spotify. If you would like to listen to the podcast free of advertisements, you can sign up to our Substack account. Comments and feedback are much appreciated. 